Uh, why don't you guys open with me to First Peter chapter three? First Peter chapter three. I'm the long-winded one, and I, I try to cut my notes down all the time. I just always struggle with trying to get through a handful of passages without being too long, but there's so much in here. Um, we've been in a series through First Peter that we've called Future Hope. And I want to lay a quick foundation for those of you that haven't been around, maybe consistently, um, just so you know that who, who is Peter writing to. Context is everything. Peter's writing to followers of Jesus that have been scattered all across uh, what today would be modern-day Turkey. Um, we've reiterated in the last few weeks that these are people who have left family and friends. They've left comfort and they've been dispersed across a foreign land to them throughout this ancient world. And they're facing intense persecution because of, as a result of their devotion to Jesus. Uh, if anybody understood persecution, it was Peter. In Peter's lifetime, he was beaten, he was threatened, he was punished, um, he was jailed for preaching the word of God. He knew what it took to endure without becoming bitter and resentful. Uh, he knew what it meant to endure without losing hope. Um, he knew what it meant to have great faith and living in an obedience in a victorious life. And so the message that Peter's trying to get out is this knowledge of a living hope that is found in Christ and encouraging the church people that Christ's example was actually to be followed. And so as we've been studying over the last few weeks, you see these specific sections where Peter's saying, do this. And he's not saying that out of legalism. He's saying he's doing that because he wants to see the church be all that God intended for it to be, even in the midst of hardship, that the church would be seen and known the way that Jesus intended for them to be seen and known, as different than the rest of the world. And so the last few weeks, we've been talking through First Peter. Peter's been encouraging the church as to what biblical submission looks like. The last three weeks, the most fun word that we can talk about in church, submission, right? Uh, we've been talking about the last few weeks. And he broke it down. He said the, the first week we, we talked about submission in regards to authorities and government. And so how we live under the authority of government, how we treat those in authority, how we submit to them. In First Peter 2.15 he said, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Then the next week we talked about submission of servants to masters, or to put it maybe in a more modern day context for you and I, submission in the workplace, submission to people that are in charge over you. Um, even when unjust things are being done to you, what does it look like for you to submit, to exemplify, to show, um, radiate Jesus to those that are in charge over you, even when unjust things are done to you? And last week we talked about the most fun one of them all, submission in marriage. <laughs> And we talked about the husband and the wife, how we live um, in our marriages, how we treat our spouses. Uh, and today we're going to get into another section where he's actually going to begin to talk about how we live amongst one another. What does this look like? How does, how does your life differ from those of the world? How do you treat one another? Um, Again, why was Peter writing these things? Peter knew that the church, the people of this time, should respond, serve, love, and work differently than the rest of the world. There was something that set them apart. 
Uh, I, I once heard somebody differentiate between a counterculture and a subculture. Have you ever t- differentiated these two things? What's the difference between a counterculture and a subculture? The difference, as I heard it put, was that it lies in their relationship with the mainstream culture. And so uh, a subculture is actually part of the mainstream culture. So a, cub, a subculture is a small group within a larger community. It's part of it. Whereas um, a counterculture actively goes against the mainstream culture. So whereas a, a subculture is a small group within this larger community, uh, a counterculture is a small group outside of the larger community. Um, whereas a subculture is, uh, boils down to an issue of image and style and vocabulary, uh, for a counterculture, it's an issue of values. And so to break that down a little bit further, a subculture is defined by the values of the culture that it exists in, whereas a counterculture creates their own values. They establish their own values. Uh, I can't help but read through Jesus' teachings. I can't help but read through the writings of Paul and Peter and hear this countercultural tone in their writing. Don't you see that when you, when you read it? You don't see them becoming part of the mainstream. You actually see them being developed as this countercultural movement to what's happening in the mainstream. And so Jesus himself said that we were to be what? He said, in the world, but not what? Of the world. Pretty interesting. In the world, submersed in it, but not of it. Mankind has a really difficult time being in anything and not becoming of that thing. That's really hard for us. We're guilty of constantly becoming immersed in everything that we do. We take advantage of it. We become part of it. We just soak it all in. The first uh, Iron Man I ever did, um, I remember... Leading up to that Iron Man, it was like I was dressing like an Iron Man. I was shaving my legs. I was like doing everything that Iron Man, Iron Men and women do. Uh, and people would be like, "Why do you shave your legs?" I don't know. It's because like all these triathlete dudes are shaving their legs. It looks really rad, you know, when you're on your bike and you know, it's like aerodynamics, right? I want to go fast and. You don't know why you're doing it. You just become part of it. You're immersed in the culture. And so as believers, we have a difficult time being in something and not becoming part of that. And so Jesus differentiates that. He says, I want you to be in the world. You're immersed in it. But I don't want you to be like them. And, and so in Peter's writings here, he's, he's beginning to break this down for it. What does it look like for you to be in it, but not of it? When we become like Jesus and we take on Jesus' identity, we no longer look like the world we live in, even though we're placed smack dab in the middle of it. And so as Peter's writing this letter, this is his encouragement to the church. And, and please understand that, that he's not rebuking them, but he's saying this. This is how a follower of Jesus responds to the cultural demands placed on them. When the culture comes upon them, they don't become part of it. They actually respond the way Christ would have them respond. They don't respond like everybody else does. You live as a citizen of your country differently in submission to the authorities that are placed over you. 
Uh, you work as an employee differently than others. You serve in the workplace and desire for God to be evident in and through you. You live as a married couple differently than those that do not know Christ. I mean, that's just bottom line. Because Jesus has done something in you, it prompts you to live differently, not for the sake of legalism. Please don't hear me this morning is saying that you need to be legalistic and do all the right things because somehow you're earning something from Jesus. But if Jesus has honestly transformed your life, it prompts you to live your life differently and that differently that you live actually sets this tone. It shows the world who Jesus is by the way you choose to live because none of the rest of the world chooses to live like that. It's different. It's a countercultural movement that we've been invited into by the grace of God. And so his point is that the world should see something different in you. The world should see something different through you. If the hope for the world exists inside you, then your life should look different. And unfortunately, that's not always the case in modern-day Christianity. I read this piece of writing a few weeks ago that I wanted to read to you guys again this morning, just a longer excerpt of it. It's kind of long, um, but it's, it was written in the second century. Um, it was written, uh, it's, it's called The Letter of Methodus to Diognetus, and this word Methodus actually just means disciple, so it was a disciple of a guy named Diognetus. And this writing was an example of Christian apologetics in the second century, so it's this writing that actually defended Christianity from their accusers. And so I wanted to read this to you guys so you can see what the tone was in the second century. How Christians look differently in the midst of massive persecution coming against them. This is how they were seen. So bear with me. It says this, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet there's something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, whether it may be, uh, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. <laughs> They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, yet they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they're put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They're totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that's their glory. They're defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference, their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors. But even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They're attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks, yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. 
To speak in general terms, we may say that the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the soul is present, is present in every part of the body while remaining distinct from it, so Christians are found in all the cities of the world but cannot be identified with the world. As the visible body contains the invisible soul, so Christians are seen living in the world, but their religious life remains unseen. The body hates the soul and wars against it, not because of any injury the soul has done it, but because of the restriction the soul places on its pleasures. Similarly, the world hates the Christians, not because they've done it it, not because they've done it any wrong, but because they're opposed to its enjoyments. Christians love those who hate them just as the soul loves the body and all its members despite the body's hatred. It's by the soul enclosed within the body that the body is held together. And similarly, it is by the Christians detained in the world as in a prison that the world is held together. The soul, though immortal, has a mortal dwelling place, and Christians also live for a time amidst perishable things while awaiting the freedom from change and decay that will be theirs in heaven. As the soul benefits from the deprivation of food and drink, so Christians flourish under persecution. Such is the Christian's lofty and divinely appointed function from which he is not permitted to excuse himself. And you read that from, this is from second century, written in a similar language and dialect as what Peter would have been writing in. And this is what they noticed about Christians in that time. They looked different. Though the world hated them, they loved and they gave and they were a blessing to the world that they lived in. They served. Um, I read this last week about this house outside of Dallas, Texas that was being uh, being built in 2002. And this house that was being built was on this row of houses called Billionaire's Row, right outside of Dallas, Texas. And at the time, this was to be the second largest residence in the the whole United States. This house was over 60,000 square feet, 60,000 square feet, 43,000 above ground, 17,000 underground. It was a $45 million home, a 16-car garage, indoor car wash facility, indoor theater, indoor, of course indoor, but gift wrapping room, because everybody needs a gift wrapping room, right, for the two times a year that you use it. Had a wine cellar, had a tasting room, Two marble tubs carved out of a single block of Carrera marble shipped in from Verona, Italy. 6,200 6, square foot pool house. And this house was being built for years. Again, it was a statement, the second largest residence in the United States. And while this house was being built, they were putting the finishing touches on it. They put 50 gallons of wood stain and sanding sealer on the floors to finish it off. And somehow in the middle of the night, the fumes from the wood stain got into the HVAC unit, which hit some electrical and killed the whole house before it was ever used. Fried it. The house was never habitated. And as I was reading the story about this house, I was thinking of the potential that lied in this house that never actually got used. 
so much there, right? $45 million, 60,000 square feet of home that would never actually be used for its potential. How tragic would it be to have a $45 million home never actually experience its full purpose after all this detail and money and time that were put into it? And how much more tragic is it for a believer to actually never step into the purpose that God created them for? How tragic is it? There's a reason that you guys have been put on this earth for such a time as this, and your purpose is not in your career, it's not in your finances, it's not in the empire that you can establish for yourself on this earth. Your purpose is actually found in the way you live as a transformed follower of Jesus. Your purpose is found in the way in which you allow the transformative work of Christ in you to flow through you and impact the world that God has placed you in. So this is what Peter says. Verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Anybody there? Okay, let's say a word. Um, he says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. How many of you? Half of you? A quarter of you? Some of you? All of you. To sum it up, so after he gives this whole breakdown of how, what submission looks like, what it's like for you uh, both in the, like under government, in the world with authorities over you, what it's like for you in the workplace, what it's like for you in marriage. He says to sum it all up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. And so I want to break down these five words or phrases so that we can understand them. The first one he says is, be harmonious. Anybody ever heard that word before? Harmonious. He's saying we're called to live harmoniously. So that doesn't mean that our goal is for everyone to be exactly the same or to agree on everything. The word harmony is actually this musical term, right? That's how we most um, know this, this word. But let me tell you guys what harmony doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that everyone is singing the same note because that would be what? Melody. It does mean that everyone is singing a note that in a given key is compatible with every other note. And that's what harmony is. Harmony is actually this controlled tension. It's interesting. It's this cooperation between different notes and volume levels. And when they're properly done, it produces this amazing sound. Have you ever sat in a room when harmony has been present amongst people's voices and with the music that's being played at the perfect volume. Have you ever heard that before? And it sounds like the perfect tone. It's amazing. So uh, imagine singers or musicians that refuse to play or, or sing in the same key. Or they refuse to balance their volume with each other and, and, and some are shouting at the top of their lungs and some are, are, are singing too low, and how do you think that this would sound if everybody's playing different keys at different times and some are singing high and some are, it sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds horrible. Who wants to sit in that room? Nobody. And when the church functions like this, when we do not live in harmony with one another, we invite the world to come partake in and see what Jesus is like, and what they get is this 
what's the word? Cacophony. This horrible sound. Oh, why would anybody want to be part of that? Why, why would I want to step foot? And these people do not even sound like they're on the same page. We're not, he's not asking for us to agree with one another, to see everything the exact same way, but to live in such a way that there's harmony, that our lives, the way we live them amongst each other, are actually singing this song. I mean, this is why we named our church Anthem to begin with, because an anthem is a song or a hymn of praise. And there's nothing greater than when our lives actually begin to sing this anthem. We don't have to verbally sing it, but our lives live it. And when that anthem is lived out and the church begins to live that anthem out together, it actually sets the stage for a pretty amazing song to be sung from the church for the rest of the world to see. We live in harmony with one another. He goes on to say sympathetic. This word means to suffer or to feel together. So just as we're to have this same sound, this harmony, we're actually to have the same heart. This is really cool. I'd ask the question this morning, um, are the words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, just a creed that we recite and we say, or are they an ongoing reality in your life that you actually love your neighbor as yourself? Like we should actually feel with one another. We should actually put others first. This is what it means to be sympathetic, to not just care about yourself, but actually care about the feelings of others, to feel with other people. And then he goes on to say, brotherly. Proverbs seventeen seventeen says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born of adversity. Proverbs 18 says, there's a friend who sticks closer than a what? A brother. Before you were Christians, did you go around calling people brother? Maybe some of you did. But this word brother, it's interesting. Even when I say it to people, you realize it conveys more than some sort of emotional bond that we have. It conveys a commitment. Like this is somebody that I honestly care about. You don't call somebody brother unless you're committed and you have their back, right? Nor do you want somebody calling your bro- you brother that does not have your back. And there's honestly something about calling somebody brother. I have friends who aren't believers, aren't followers of Jesus, and though I genuinely have a love for them, I would struggle to call them brother because brother seems like one more step in commitment. It's, it's deep. There's both a, a commitment and this exclusive, exclusivity to being someone's brother or sister. And it should be obvious to anyone watching when we call each other brother that we actually mean it. That it's not just something we say. It's actually the life that we live. We're committed to one another. So when somebody walks into your home, when somebody walks into our church gatherings here on Sunday mornings, the first thing they should notice is the sense of brotherliness, the sense of affection that exists between the people in this room. They should see that. That should be appealing to them because you don't see that everywhere. Yet here is a room with a couple hundred people in it that come from all different walks of life, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, all different careers. You guys have been all different places. You have different amounts of kids. Some don't have kids. Some are young. Some are old. But yet when we come together, there's something really beautiful 
about the brotherly and sisterly love that exists in this room. And when the world walks into that, what do they say? What? These guys aren't divided on political spectrums. These guys aren't divided by all the crazy um, junk going on in the world. And, you know, whether that's political or whether that's sexual or whatever it is. Like, they're not divided like the rest of the world is divided. They see you guys and the way you live amongst one another. And there's something really appealing about that. You don't even have to speak it, and yet they see it. Nothing blesses me more as a pastor than to hear guests that have come to our church and they say things like, there was just like a love in the room. Like I could tell that those people really care about one another. How do you explain that? What is that? Is that everybody just trying real hard to love each other? (laughs) You ever walked into a home where mom and dad are like, we've been trying real hard to love one another. You know, you kids, do you see how, how good we love each other? It's like you can't force that. It's something that comes from the heart. He goes on to say, kind hearted. For some of you in this room, you're kind hearted and it comes really naturally for you. <laughs> Others, anybody struggle with being kind hearted, honestly? <laughs> Thank you. At least there's a couple honest people. Some of us actually have to make an intentional effort to being kind hearted. Every one of us has blown it at times. Every one of us has become short-tempered with people. And part of being kind-hearted is simply giving the other person the benefit of the doubt. So that when there's conflict that exists between brothers and sisters, we actually move forward in conflict on the assumption that the offense was unintentional. Like, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt because I know that that's not who they are. It goes on to say, humble in spirit. Um, It should not take us a lot to be humble. Just being honest with ourselves ought to do the trick. Um, in, In the Greek root of the word, it means to reckon oneself at a lower status. And the best definition that I've ever heard for the word, for the Uh, definition of the word humility was this. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's the best way to put it. Like We take the lower road. To be humble in spirit is to not insist on your way. It means to be gentle. It means to be reasonable. And humility requires that we be secure in who you are. Like You cannot be humble if you're not secure in your identity. Somebody who's insecure honestly cannot afford to be humble. They're worried that others will see them as weak. And then he flows out of this idea, these five things into verse nine. He says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Anybody want to inherit a blessing? Have you guys ever wondered in your lives why some people are able to respond with patience and kindness when they're wronged and other people react out of anger and vengeance? Have you ever seen that? And you go like, why do some people in the same circumstances respond one way versus the other? And here's an interesting thought. The more secure you are about your identity and your worth, the more likely you are to weather 
insult and attack gracefully. If you know whose you are in Christ, it makes weathering attack completely different in your life. The more insecure else, because you strike back out of insecurity. And so when you know in your heart of hearts that you're loved and that you're of such worth to Jesus that he actually died on your behalf, then it's not such a big deal when you're wronged by men in light of what Jesus has done for us. Um, I think about it like this. The other, the other day I, I walked on my back patio and we have this little 16-pound cockapoo named Atlas. And our next-door neighbors have these two massive dogs. I, I, one's like a husky and the other one's this massive lab. And um, they go lay next to the fence like they're teasing her, right? They're huge. And they just lay there. And the minute Atlas goes out the back door, she runs over to the back corner where this massive dog is laying, and she just sits there across the fence while he's just chilling. And she's like yapping at him, like trying to get his attention. He doesn't flinch at all. He does not even care. And she just keeps going, yap, 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 yap. She's like trying to get, like, play with me, do something. And I think that it's normally the little dogs that do all the yapping and get up in other dogs' faces. And I was sitting there watching her yap at this big dog, and he wasn't even phased by it. And I was thinking, he's so calm and collected. And I was thinking, the, the insecure one is constantly trying to compensate by actually putting on the, this facade of strength. So the one who's secure has nothing to prove and saves their energy for worthwhile things, right? I mean, the big dog's like, whatever, I'm not going to waste my energy on you. And she's just expending all of her energy trying to get this massive dog's attention. So Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us not to return evil for evil, not to return insult for insult. And given who we are in Christ, in the Lord, he's not asking anything that I think is unreasonable of us. Don't go blow for blow with people. That's not your place in the world. Your place in the world is to not to defend yourself and try to stick up for yourself and lash out at people, come back at them and try to stick up for yourself and tell them why it is you're not wrong and, and why, why it is they're wrong or whatever it is. Like your place in this world is not to try to compensate for yourself because your identity is not found in how people treat you or what they think of you. Your identity is found in Jesus. And if our identity is found in Christ, then I think we respond like the massive husky and the massive lab. Is that all you got? You know, like, (laughs) go ahead. Like, what you're saying, what you're doing, it's not going to phase me because my identity is not found in how you're responding to me in this certain situation. We have a security in Christ. He goes on in verse 10 through 12. Um, and he, he paraphrases this passage out of Psalm 34. And he's emphasizing this relationship between our conduct and receiving God's blessing. And he says this. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
Peter's not suggesting that we earn our salvation, but that this is the conduct of those who have a proper reverence for God, right? At the heart of this passage is that one phrase, he must seek peace and what? Pursue it. It sounds like the action is on you. Are you seeking peace? Are you pursuing peace? Not just seeking peace for your own life, but seeking to actually be an agent of peace, an agent of reconciliation in the world that we live in. And this is so much easier said than done. Peace requires two parties, right? There are times when one party um, in a conflict actually refuses the peace that the other one's trying to offer. Honestly, in the last few weeks, I've had more of this shakedown in my life than ever before, where it's like you're trying to seek peace. You want to see reconciliation happen. And if you're like me, you're the one that's constantly going after somebody, barraging them, like, we got to reconcile, we got we to seek peace, we got to seek peace. And at some point, you just become this kind of clanging symbol because you realize at some point that there's only so much that you can do. You can seek peace. You can be an agent of peace, but it takes two parties to actually reconcile, correct? And so what are you doing in your life? When you look at the relationships that are broken in your life, what are you doing to seek peace in those relationships? Or are you just waiting for somebody else to do that for you? God has called you to be the one that would take the first step forward, whether it's met or not, and somebody desires to reciprocate the peace that you're bringing to them, it's your responsibility as followers of Jesus to seek peace, to pursue it. Jesus said that we should be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents. In Romans 12, 17, Paul sort of echoes the same warning, not to repay evil for evil. And and he says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. And this phrase, so far as it depends on you, is vital in that. So far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Do whatever you can do to seek peace in the world. And, And ultimately, those who pursue goodness will be vindicated, as Peter affirms in this next verse. He says in verse 13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Does that sound like a blessing to anybody in this room? (laughs) Suffering for the sake of righteousness. Serving Jesus actually results in a good life. In a nutshell, you give him all and your life will be good. It may not be good in the standard of the rest of the world and what everybody else has and what you want, but your life will be good. You will be an upright person pursuing peace, not repaying evil for evil living harmoniously and sympathetically with others, being humble in spirit. I mean, these are qualities, characteristics of life that you are not taught as a kid, right? 
you're sort of taught to figure out what your career is and then go to school and make money and establish your empire on this earth. You're not taught to figure out how you're going to be humble in spirit and what it's like to be sympathetic with others and to live harmoniously and to not repay evil for evil. We actually are kind of bred in the society where we figure out how we can repay evil for evil. What'd that person do to you? Go right back at them, man. Like file a lawsuit. Do what you can to go after them. Take them for what they're worth. This is the society we live in. But yet as believers, we don't have to be vindicated by the system. Jesus is enough for us. In Matthew 5, Jesus says this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I've, I've heard so many Christians in my lifetime say that they hope they are taken out of this world before they have to suffer persecution or martyrdom. I don't ever want to face that. I hope Jesus comes back and just removes me from that so I don't ever have to face it. But yet what I read in scripture, it's like it consistently says that it is a high honor to be chosen to suffer for the sake of Christ. It's not like I relish the idea of martyrdom or torture, but if it came down to that, we're hardly the first to suffer in this. Jesus willingly went before us, paid the ultimate price, And anything we face this side of eternity pales in comparison to Christ's amazing example and sacrifice for you. And we're not living this life for this earth, what we partake in in the 80 years that you get on this planet. You're living this life for what's ahead, the future hope that we keep talking about, right? But there's something greater that lies ahead for you in eternity. What you face on this earth pales in comparison. Jesus has this massive plan. And so he goes into verse 14 and he says this. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. What does he make it sound like is the thing that protects you from all of that? Sanctifying Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up here. I wanna end on this. For us to have composure in this world that has just gone awry, like this world that has just gone crazy, it actually reflects some sort of genuine faith in an all-powerful God for us. 
because the world sees us and they see a people that aren't, their lives are not dictated by the circumstances around them. And so when you're asked how you can be calm in the midst of life's storms in your life, you're given the opportunity to actually testify of the truth and the goodness of Jesus. It's like God has given you a, 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 an amazing opportunity to profess of the amazing grace and the love and, and the, the faith in Je- that we can have in Jesus. And so Peter urges us to always be ready. In other words, to look for such opportunities and then pre- be prepared to give an apt answer. And I'd ask you the question this morning, are you prepared to give that answer? In light of what you're going to face this next week, are you prepared to give the answer? Are you prepared to defend Jesus? And for those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, I, I think that oftentimes we don't even know what it is we're defending. And so in the face of persecution, which not many of us in this room will face, but in, in the face of um, this world gone crazy, what is it you're going to defend to the rest of the world when you stand up in the midst of it and you say, even though all hell's breaking loose around me, there's something else that I'm standing on. There's a hope that I have that's not grounded in this earth. And Peter in verse 17 states the obvious. It's better to suffer unjustly on account of making a stand for righteousness than to suffer justly for having done wrong. So if you're suffering for doing what's right, there's four things that I want you guys to take heart this morning, take to heart this morning. One, uh, the suffering that you experience is God's will. It's not happenstance. And that's a crazy way to look at it. That if he willed it, and you're suffering for doing what's right, then he's the one that has to arm you in the midst of it and get you through it. It's up to him. Second, that he considers you worthy and that with Jesus' help, you're actually able to endure what it is you face on this earth. Third, your reward in heaven increases when you suffer unjustly. I mean, it's just, there is an eternal reward that awaits you. And fourth, you guys are walking this crazy path here on this earth that's been well trodden. And it's the same path that Jesus himself actually walked. He has not asked you to do anything that he himself has not done. You're not serving a God that sits up in the clouds and says, oh, this is what I want you to do for me this week. You know, have fun with this one, you little <laughs> runt. Like, go for it. Go do all the right things, try to stand up in the midst of that. You actually serve this Jesus that has gone before you, that has faced suffering, that has been persecuted, that was beaten and hung on a cross. And in the midst of it all, still honored his father in heaven. As we read through um, all of First Peter, I can't help but just see these sort of mile markers in the faith where Jesus is going, how are you doing in this area? How are you doing in this area? How, how is the world seeing Christ in you and the way you live your life? Because some of you in this room are facing some things in your life right now that many of us haven't. 
Some of you are at odds with other people, maybe even in this room. Some of you have had some of the most wrong and vile things done towards you and you feel justified in lashing out and giving them what they deserve. And I challenge you this morning, what does it look like for you to live harmoniously? What does it live, look like to live sympathetically? What does it look like to be humble in spirit? What does it look like to not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but to be blessed, to rise up above, even in the midst of being slapped in the face, to be a blessing to those around you? That's really difficult work. Really difficult work. And that's the work that he's called us to, to take the lower, humble road to exemplify Christ in our life and show the love of Jesus to those around us by the way we serve and love them despite what it is they give to us or can offer us in return. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, you know the state of the hearts of each person in this room. God, you also know their purpose and what it is you've called them to. Jesus, you have paved the way for them to walk out the righteousness that you've bestowed upon them. I lift them up to you this morning, God, as I know that some will leave this building this morning and they'll go to homes where it is just in shambles and their marriage is a wreck and they're struggling to figure out how to get on the same page. Some of them will leave this building and they'll go back to friends or old friends, uh, people that they work for or with, people that they go to school with that they can't stand, that have done awful things to them. And yet you've called us to be a people that will live in such a way that we will show the love of Christ even to those that have treated us worse. And so I pray, Jesus, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that your love and your grace would well up within us. God, I'm praying by the power of your Holy Spirit that, um, Jesus, we would miraculously live harmoniously with one another, that we would be sympathetic with others. God, that we would make it a point in our lives to not allow the enemy to come throw up walls and tear down relationships and um, wreak a bunch of havoc in our lives. But in fact, we would be those that would fight for peace. God, I pray that as we leave this place, that our lives would exemplify Jesus in such a way that those that don't know you would be drawn to you, Jesus best form of evangelism that we can live out is just to live in complete obedience to the spirit of the most high God and allow others to see you in us and so I pray Jesus that as we leave this place today you make yourself known to our city as we know there are hundreds of thousands that probably don't know you in and around us and I pray Jesus that you would make yourself known through the 200 that sit in this room this morning make yourself known Jesus I thank you Lord for your continued grace in our lives that even when we fall short you pick us back up and you give us a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth chance and I'm praying this morning God that we would find our identity wrapped up in you God I pray that um our circumstances would not define us, but you would define us and that, Jesus, you make yourself known through us. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.